A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means adult language is probably going to be present. Just so you know. From the Bedlam Podcast Network, this is A Tiny Revolution, celebrating our everyday victories while telling the stories and having the conversations that actually matter. I'm Kevin Garcia, and I struggle with uh, anxiety and depression, and that's why I haven't been producing as much content recently. Um, Great way to start out a podcast, right? If you've seen my blog recently, I kind of wrote about, not kind of, I did, I wrote about um, my struggles with anxiety and depression. And recently, it's been really um, screwing with my ability to create and produce things, which like produces the shame cycle of feeling like I'm a bad creative and feeling like I'm a sucky human being and yada, yada, yada. If you struggle with um, mental health, if you struggle with your ideas around self-worth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't, let me just kind of paint a picture for you real quick. I can't really point to anything in my life that is wrong. In particular, like I have a job, I can pay my bills, I'm in relatively good health, but I am anxious a lot of the time. There are days when I can't get out of bed. At any given moment, I would rather not think about anything, and so I'm more likely to just collapse into a Netflix binge or um, read something than having to think about my life or the state of the world. Or my place in this world that feels like it's falling apart. And yeah, I wanted to share that with you because I feel like it's important to you to know where like I'm coming from. And to know that if you struggle with mental health issues that you're not alone either. It's probably a brain chemistry thing. I've never been super diagnosed, but like when I read the symptoms and look at myself, I'm like, ah, that makes sense. Although I was describing this these feelings to my cousin and I said, but don't worry, I'm like the, the fun and functional kind of depressed person. Um, most of the time. And honestly, outside of my window, it sounds like there's an ice cream truck right now. And I'm really tempted to stop recording and go get some ice cream because that sounds like fun. But we're not going to do that right now because we've got to crank this thing out. So apologies to all of you people who are expecting another um, podcast on the Mondays. I'm working to get back into a more regular schedule of podcasting and blogging. Um, building into my schedule time to record. Building into my schedule intentional time to edit. So um, thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for loving me well. And uh, I appreciate it. Okay, now for some dates coming up in LA. I'm going to be out there the week of April 4th for the Reformation Program Leading Worship. All that information can be found on Facebook. And I'll probably include it in the uh, show notes as well, so you can check that out and definitely come out. We're going to be down in the Laguna area, so I hope that you'll come and get your worship on. Might be doing an event with my friend Brian Tirada, um down in Azusa, or up in Azusa, which is uh, next to LA um, as well. Not quite sure if that's going to pan out. I hope it does, and if it does, I will let you know how it happens if not like uh shoot me a twitter dm or shoot me a facebook message if you're in the la area because i really would love to hang out and get to know you okay now on to what we're doing today today i'm sharing a conversation with my friend sue ann sue ann shah about her upcoming online release of her documentary juan dao which uh she's going to do all the talking about and explain it a lot better than i can but let me tell you about who she is 
Suan Shaw is a Taiwanese-American multidisciplinary artist that's working predominantly through word, music, and film. Themes in her work uh, explore aspects of spirituality, identity, race, gender, sexuality. Her first feature-length documentary, Huan Dao, premiered in October in Nashville, Tennessee. In addition to her own creative works, she collaborates with other artists and musicians in a variety of capacities as an artist manager, producer, audio engineer, and songwriter. She has a BBA in music business with a production emphasis and a Chinese minor from Belmont University and is emerging as an amazing theologian of color and self-identifies as a Presbyterian mystic. In this conversation, we're going to be covering race, her journey, faith, the documentary, a bunch of other fun stuff, and I know you'll enjoy it as much as I did because Sue Ann is such a dynamic individual. So please welcome to your earbuds, your car, wherever you are listening to this, welcome my sister and friend, Sue Ann Shaw. Juan Dao is the name of my film, and the idea for it came about in about three years ago, around this time, actually. And um, the story goes that when I was studying abroad in Taiwan in 20, um, 2012, but between my sophomore and junior year of college, um, I had learned about this trip that people do a lot. It's called a Huan Dao, where um, Huan Dao, the term literally just means like a circumnavigation of an of the island. Hmm. And so people do that by biking a lot. So oh. you can like Huan Dao by like train or you could do it by moped. You could do it on a bike. You could do it on foot. But like it's a really big thing for people to do it on bikes recently. And so I was like, oh, man, like I love bikes. I spent a couple years here in Nashville, like flipping vintage bicycles, oh, like wow. restoring them and fixing them up for people. And like I bought used bikes all the time and they broke all the time and I had to learn how to fix them, which is kind of how I got into that because I was too poor to like buy like a, a nice new fully functioning bicycle. Yeah. And um, so I've, I've gotten really into biking and kind of like bike culture in a lot of ways. So when I found out about this and I was studying abroad, I was like, that is awesome. I want to do that. Like after I graduate from college, I'm going to come back and I'm going to do a Juan doll. And so knowing that I kind of started sp- like saving money for the trip, mm-hmm. um, which was great, you know, to do. Um, and then I was talking to I think I was just I was like lying in my bed thinking about it. And for many, many years, I mean, pretty much since my freshman year of college, which was six and a half, six years ago now, um, I've been really passionate about um, talking about representation and media. Right. And so particularly, it's like really, really bad for Asian Americans. Like mm, there's exceptionally bad whitewashing, which like we've seen with Matt Damon's The Great Wall that just which came I out. still don't understand, like how yeah. that even happened. Oh, I know. I understand. There's actually like a more nuanced analysis that I could give you, which has to do with um, it has to do with like Chinese, like the government of China's propaganda. So um, it will make the film will make more sense if you think of it as a as a mainland China government propaganda film. And uh. um, yeah, so like people don't really get it because it was like produced in China and like all these things. And a lot of Matt Damon's character it really exists to be the concept of the Western perspective, the Western eye, because like a lot of like somebody, people have been posting about it, talked about how a lot of the shots are just of like Matt Damon, like looking at like the Chinese armies in awe or like looking at the great wall in like awe. Uh. And the idea is supposed to like, we are impressive. We're going, we like, we're a great country. Like the Westerners are in awe of us. 
And so, yeah, so it's like on one end you have Hollywood executives who think, oh, if we have the Western perspective in the film, um, American viewers will have a character they can identify with. And then from a from the like China, mainland China perspective, it's, oh, like we can get a really big film star in this. It's like um, it's like a pride thing. It's like we're more yeah. important enough to get a big Hollywood movie star. And then we're also going to create this kind of like concept of, of the Western perspective and um, and show them being deferential yeah. to us. So there's a lot of stuff there that yeah. if you aren't familiar with like how the Chinese government works mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of the way that they produce media there to propagandize their like nationalism mm-hmm. and like you really like it's kind of confusing yeah so to jump back into also thank you for that analysis because i didn't know that at all uh, but to jump back to yeah, uh, yeah to go Wendell, back uh, yes so i was like aware of like the lack, lack of, representation, of representation asian representation lack of stories um you know it's important to make the differentiation between asian actors and asian american actors because like sometimes I have conversations with people and they're like, Oh, what about Jackie Chan though? What about Jet Li? And I'm like, those are all actors from Asia. Like we don't actually have Asian Americans and there's a concept, you know, in this like Asian American racism issues of like, um, we call it the perpetual foreigner where we're never Mm. seen as fully American, fully, um, present. We're always seen as perpetual foreigners, even people whose families have been here for like four or five generations. Like people think that, you don't belong. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the lack of Asian American narrative specifically is highly problematic because you don't, you can't find yourself. You can't um, see yourself on screen. And we all know that like, you know, for those of us who are marginalized people, um, how important representation is to, mm-hmm. to see and know that you belong, that you exist mm-hmm. one and that you're seen yeah. and then you're also celebrated and that you have a story that matters to the world. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been studying this for a long time. I, I started a blog at the time. Don't look it up. Um, <laughs> where I, where I evaluated representation of Asian characters, Asian American mm. characters. Um, and so I was really into that, you know, all about representation and I kind of had the idea. So I had that framework coming in and then I realized, like, as I continued to tell people about how I was going to do this Huandao trip and go back to Taiwan, I was going to bike it. So many people kept being like, man, that's so awesome. I wish I could do that. Hmm. You know, and these are like Asian American people as well as like people of European descent. They're all like, that sounds like an awesome trip. Like, you're just going to like go bike a country and an island. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be awesome. And I realized like that. And I'd been like shooting music videos and I'd been doing a lot of video directing work here anyway in Nashville up until Mm -hmm. that time. I was like, man, I actually through making this piece of art can take people on the journey with me. Yeah. Because like they wouldn't be able like not everyone can like actually physically bike like 40 to 60 miles every day for two weeks. And not everyone can like get to the other side of the country and not everyone can like speak language and not every you know, there's all these reasons why people can't do stuff. Of course. But I can through this through art, I can take someone on the journey with me. Mm-hmm. So um, it wasn't until I realized that there were people who actually wanted to be on the journey with me mm-hmm. that I thought, oh, this is an opportunity not only to do that for people, but also um, to add to like this burgeoning canon of Asian American um, uh, literature and film and media in general. I loved so, that, what you just said, the burgeoning <laughs> canon. 
Yeah, I actually talked about that in my panel at Wild Goose with Kenji and Sissia. Um, there is a really great poet and writer that I love, a Chinese-American poet. Her name's Jenny Zhang. And I read an interview with her where she talked about how everything, like because the canon doesn't really exist because there's such such little work out there that we are actually writing the canon for Asian-American um, like art. So um, to, she's like very intentional about what she releases and what she writes because she knows that like we're kind of at this pivotal moment where we're really setting the tone for the rest of forever. Right. Perhaps. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but like Asian Americans are like the fastest growing population like in the United hmm. States. I didn't right? know that. And yeah. So there's a group called 18 million and rising. But like in terms of like growth numbers, like we're not there and having those people, but we have the fastest growth. And mm-hmm. um, I've been doing a lot of work lately in learning more about how to um, to advocate for and defend um, undocumented people in our country. Right. And I was realizing as I was kind of digging into these immigration narratives that um, the fastest growing um, demographic of undocumented people are actually Asian. Wow. And that um, undocumented immigration from Mexico has gone down a lot in the last couple of years. However, what continues to rise are Asian, mm-hmm. are Asians. And um, and the biggest group, like out of all the Asian undocumented people, the biggest group is Chinese people, hmm. which I am like of the Chinese diaspora. Mm-hmm. So these are all things that like we don't talk about in our community itself and that i don't hear people who do a lot of work with undocumented folks talking about the asian the growing asian populations in undocumented communities or the undocumented demographics i guess so um like let's just get real for a second like building a wall isn't going to keep asian americans out oh absolutely not because they're obviously they come over on boats yeah (laughs) build a a wall on the beach obviously right (laughs) yeah so and then um, make um Make the ocean, make the sea creatures pay for it. <laughs> make Atlantis. Call up the mayor of Atlanta, Atlantis. Not Atlanta. Kasim Reed wouldn't do that, obviously. But, you know, call Ariel and King Trident and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. make him pay for it. Make a deal. Make a deal. Let's make a deal. So my dad was born in Burma actually oh wow yeah so a lot of people don't realize that and it's even within like a Taiwanese American community that's kind of like that's not like normal right like that's not like something you hear a lot so because Burma for a long time has been going under this really quiet genocide for like the past decade is that right um something like that I'm not like huge I mean it's just there's a lot of issues a lot of violence Mm-hmm. They're um, uns- like the government power totalitarianism, you know, casual um, uh, casual oppression of peoples. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that um, I actually watched a documentary about it when I was in Taiwan back in 2012. It talked about the abuse of um, like basically enslavement for people for jade mining. So that's a really big thing you might not know about Burma is that a lot that it's like a really jade fruitful country mm-hmm. and jade is like the precious stone of asia or especially chinese culture interesting so um like my dad used to tell me bedtime stories like jade stories about people like discovering jades and becoming fabulously rich like like those are my bedtime stories interesting but, like yeah i know i'm like realizing all these things are like really unique to my family but um 
but yeah, so jade is a huge thing and there's a lot of jade in Burma and especially the type of jade that's in Burma is really popular. So there's been a lot of abuses. I mean, you can think of it as like diamond mining, you know, blood diamond kind of stuff. It's like blood jade. Hmm. Um, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on Burmese history. And um, the, the basic story is my grandmother and my grandfather they live, my grandmother's from Yunnan and my grandfather's from Sichuan, which are both southwestern provinces of China. And so during um, during the Chinese Civil War, when the communists were defeating the nationalists and taking over, my grandmother escaped. Um, she left her village when she was 18 and crossed the mountain pass and went to Burma. Hmm. And then that's where she met my grandfather and then my dad was born in Burma and was that lived there until he was 14 when they then they went to Taiwan. And so it's really interesting because the conversation lately has been about refugees and immigrants in our, you know, kind of like national consciousness. And one of the things that has come up is um, what makes a refugee. And so there's like a legal status of people who like are officially like legally refugees because they're displaced by war or family, like just like an instability persecution in their countries. Um, and then there's just like people who are immigrating. And sometimes there's people who are like undocumented, some people who are immigrants who don't have official refugee status. But the reasons why they're immigrating, they're migrating, the reason why they're migrating is the same as what we would legally classify as people who are refugees. And so my my father's side of the family is uh, is could be easily classified as refugees. So when my grandmother and my grandfather left China, you know, they just left everything they had and went to this other country to escape war and persecution. And um, my dad told me, so I was interviewing my dad on the trip and he was telling me about how when he was in living in Burma, he had these papers that said, no country, no land. Wow. And I never... That's, had... that's it? Or was it just like his name and like... Basically... Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like, that's the thing is like he had papers, papers that said he belonged nowhere. Huh. Right, like they, well, they they didn't have citizenship because there was this overchanging of government in you know in China. So like they basically forfeited their like citizen whatever citizenship they might have. And then when they went to Burma, they weren't like, I mean like my grandmother like crossed over a mountain pass with like horse raiders. Like you know what I'm saying? Like whoa, it, that's crazy. There's <laughs> there's like I'm like as I'm digging into these like these stories of undocumented people, I'm like oh, what happened? To my dad like. Basically, he and his family were undocumented Chinese refugees in Burma. Mm. Um, and what would have happened if, like, they persecuted people who didn't have papers? Yeah. Like, in my father's situation. And, like, you know, if it was me, if it was me and I was a mother or a child and my parents are that, I wanted to do everything I could to protect my children. Oh, hell yeah, I would cross a border. Mm-hmm. I would cry, I would do whatever it took to take care of the people that I love. Yeah. Like papers are no papers. I'm going to do that. Like and it is just like it, it's helping me to figure out like what is the humane thing to do? What is the thing that dignifies and respects somebody who is made in the image of God and realizing that my own existence and my own story is really not that far off. Yeah from from this certainly the context is different but like i can i'm like the motivation behind all of this is like so my dad like my dad was arguably undocumented Mm -hmm. and then um or like they had documents but they didn't 
say that they didn't have any standing anywhere. So that's why they went to Taiwan, because Taiwan was offering citizenship to displaced Chinese people. Mm-hmm. Because there were all these Chinese people all over you know, Asia who had been displaced by these wars and by whatever, and they wanted to give them an opportunity to have a place to belong. Yeah. Um, to have a place where you had papers that told you you were a citizen, right? And my dad, I asked him, like this, none of this is in the documentary, but we recorded all of it in an interview. I asked him when he went to Taiwan if he felt like the way that I feel here in America. Like, do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you're a foreigner? Do you f-? And he was like, no, it felt like I, it felt like home. It felt like a place that even though I'd never been, like I knew I belonged. There is a quote, which is attributed to lots of different people, but um, I think like they talk about, some people say John Adams or whatever, John Quincy Adams. Anyway, um, the quote is like, I am a soldier so that my son can be a farmer so that his son can be a poet. Mm. Yeah. Um, And... I think about that all the time because my parents are like professionals. My mom, my mom was a nurse and my dad is an engineer and my mom always wanted to make art and be a musician and like all this stuff. But because of the, the poverty of her family, she knew she had a responsibility to take care of them. And so she became a nurse mm-hmm. and like my parents dream has always been to create a situation for us and my siblings where we don't have to make decisions like that. Um, and mm. like my grandfather, my mom's grandfather was a soldier in the nationalist army, the KMT army. And then my mother is a nurse and I am a poet. Like this piece of work would like not exist without them. Um, and I know that like for them, this is basically a tribute to them. This entire film is to say like, I come from somewhere and that matters and you matter and where you've been and what you've been through makes me. And, um, and I go forward into the future. I don't live in the past, but I do realize that, um, I have, everyone has context. Everyone comes from somewhere and those things affect us. Right. And I think that part of the, the problems, part of the, the postmodern failing has been to dismiss, completely dismiss tradition and the history of the significance of context and, um, and all of these sorts of things, um, which is why we've kind of created the cultural vacuum that we have today because um, people feel like they have no idea who they are and where they belong and why they're here. And, um, and part of that is because, I mean, for most of civilization people you know had a village and they had a clan and they had people who loved them and they they had a sense of belonging in that community as like i need all these other people and they also need me yeah um and our a lot of our problems in our society are that people want to be a part of like all these buzzwords about authenticity and community and whatever classic classic but it's because people want to belong somewhere, but they mm. don't want to have, ha- but they don't want responsibility. And there is no belonging yeah, without yeah, yeah, responsibility. Yeah. 
I've never done a film this big, right? I've never done a project this big that would take this long, that would take this much hard drive space, that would take this much project management. Like, it was, this is oh, the biggest. Oh, you mean like actual hard drive space, not like oh, mental. Oh, literally. Hard, like mental. Like, I, I was thinking mental hard drive space. It's like, oh. That's I mean, an... both, right? It's both. But, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I was care. I have, like, I have, like, 12, 15 hard drives on my desk. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, film, like, video footage takes up so much space. Like, um, oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, so like, I mean, I had like maybe a hundred hours of footage, Kevin. Oh, like, that's so much to, to sort like, through. Yeah. I had to like go through all of it and <laughs> gosh. Um, yep. So, um, so I did spend a couple months in the beginning just cataloging stuff. And mm-hmm. then once I'd finished cataloging, I just was stuck because like the project was so big and I was so like emotionally, I was just in an emotionally tender place in my yeah. life that I didn't have it in me to just dive in. And I was, I think sometimes when you have a really big project, you don't know where to start because it's so big that you just don't do anything. Um, and so I, I was stuck in that block for a couple months. And it was really hard because I kept shaming myself for not doing stuff. And that just made I it know harder. exactly what you're talking about. It's like, God, I should really sit down and do this thing but just like and then when you don't do it like you get mad at yourself for not doing it and it's just a vicious cycle of just like feeling like you're a piece of shit yeah so i remember i think i finished cataloging in like february like um two years ago and then i had set a goal that i would have like a cut of the film done by like the middle of april so i remember like my iCal like notification going off on like the middle of april being like you should have a fine, like you should have a cut of the film done. I hadn't even began editing. Oh wow! And like, and it was just this. It was a. Sh- I mean, it was obviously like a really deep shame that like every time like I would like remember that I needed to be working on the film. I would remember just how far behind I was. And like, even if I started working right now, I would still be behind. Mm-hmm. And and that just kind of kept me in this like I'd rather not deal with this. And right, I was like caught in this like immobilization. I was frozen by my own shame. And I like kind of had reached a point where I was like, I can't. You can't like keep doing this. Like, you have to like change the way that you approach this because this isn't working. Mm-hmm. And so what I did instead of like, it's like when your gut, when you're like, this is I'm still so evangelical. So it's like when your sin nature pushes <laughs> you to, to like work and like pushes you into this like you must work you must work thing like the um the spirit the like the new clothes the spirit of god says rest when we when our when our sin desire says i must work i must work the spirit of god says we must rest and jesus says i have come that you may have like be rest mm-hmm. like my you know like i have come to give rest to the weary and um and like I've actually been studying um, this, I've been reading this book called The Sabbath lately, yeah. and thinking a lot about um, about the role of the Sabbath in our trust in God. And so it was this moment that I needed to like let go. I re- like I was. It's like when you hold on so tight, it's it's like God is like, okay, just let go a little bit, like mm-hmm. <laughs> just let go a little. Inside, so just is unclenching my fists, so to speak, and um and just resting mm-hmm. a bit and um. And I realized that, like, I was going to take away my expectations for myself um, and my pressure. Like, you know, I was really caught up in my own failure and I needed to let go of my ideas of success. 
so that I could no longer be mobilized by failure, which, you know, this is all in your head. It's not like, they're not like, there's not like people waiting outside your door. I mean, like every day you wake up and like, you're a failure. No, it's like, it's mm-hmm. the voice in your own head. So I, I actually took a time of rest and I was like working, I had been working on this big project with this other band and doing all these other things. And I realized like, Suzanne, like you need to take, you just need to like sit and read. You need to heal. Mm-hmm. You need to, um, so I just like tried, I just started turning down work actually during that time. I started reading a lot more, taking walks, going to the park. Um, I mostly focused a lot on reading and I never like, you know, I used to, what I used to do is like open final cut on my computer and then it would just sit there and do nothing for days. I wouldn't even open and I would just like, you know, not, that is not my goal. I have no timeline. I have no expectations. I'm just, um, reading and I like went to Chicago, visited my friend Beverly and, um, I just like sorted through and, and, and meditated a bit and, um, really rested. I really like think of that time as an intentional Sabbath and, um, and I didn't know when it was going to end. Like, I didn't know, I didn't like set this like, okay, you're going to do this for a week or you're going to do this for a month. Like I just went into this period of time, um, of rest for my soul. And I had no idea when it was going to end, which was mm. also like that. So scary. It was terrifying. Cause I was like, what if I'm lazy and I never stop? And or like, like or what if I don't finish this thing still? Or like, what if someone asks you, what are you doing right now? Oh, nothing. You know, like what if I have nothing to talk about? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. That is pretty like for a person like me, that's really hard to be like, I'm just reading a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, I've taken, I was like, I've decided to take, I know, for example, like when I, me and Amelia went on that cruise uh, a couple weeks ago, I, it took me two days to wind, like to wind down from like this compulsion to like, I almost bought like the really expensive like email package so that I could check my email and do work on the cruise mm. because I was just like, well, I need to be doing something. <laughs> even though like you're literally in the middle of the ocean. Mm. It was interesting. Cause I super scaled down. I wasn't working a lot, so I wasn't really making money. Right. And, um, and so I just like cut out like all the unnecessary costs of my life. I was living on so much, like such little money and just like cooking and not like going out and all this stuff. But you know, I, God has always provided me what I needed, mm-hmm. like not more than what I need, but That's I always have for what I need. And, that was a good time to just, I mean, all of it was trust, like letting go of my career, like aspirations and my hope for my own personal success and glory. And also my own desire to hypermanage my finances and my workflow. Um, and so, yeah, and I didn't know when it was going to end, but like eventually I did get to the point where I was like, all right, it's time to work now. And I just knew when, (laughs) but I didn't, but I like, I hadn't planned it out. You know, I think it lasted maybe like a month, two months. Yeah. But I think not enough artists do that. Not enough artists can like are it's almost just like you if art is not killing you or if art, if you're not suffering for your art then it's not really art. Or <laughs> or I am going into this project like I think that's like how my relationship with my book has been for a little bit. It's just like if I don't get this done by X date like it's never going to get done. And like, you know, December 31st came and went and I still only had four chapters written and the rest of it still felt like an enigma of like what this thing was supposed to be. And I would like beat myself up for, and then like for like, it was the same thing with you. Just like, I just, I just stopped working on it for a little bit. I like, intentionally stopped working on it. Yeah, instead I said, of like... I, said, it was, I, I, I often think about it like this way with like artistic stuff. When I was, um, 
when I was in middle school, my my mom got me piano lessons, and I was um, you know, I'm good now or good-ish now on piano because like I spent you know hours and hours and hours practicing, which is like initially like if because I, I'm someone who like if I'm not like naturally good at something, I get super discouraged and I don't want to do it <laughs> for fear of like not being good at it, mm-hmm. um, or embarrassing myself or whatever. But I remember, like, my – and also, like, I, I had for a long time super bad performance anxiety, um, specifically around music stuff. So, like, any time, like, I had to play the piano or sing in front of people, I would freak out. And I would just, like, forget words, forget my lines in a play. Um, but, like, anyways, all I have to say is this, is that whenever I would get frustrated in front of my piano teacher, she would say, okay, take a second, stop, take your hands off the piano – Take a deep breath and then try it again. And I think like I remember that because like it was a, such a like a, a bigger picture for me of like what the rest of my creative life was going to be like. Mm. Um, and I didn't I'd never dreamed that it would be turning into like creating a podcast or, mm. you know, starting a blog or writing a book or like, you know, eventually starting to try to start a YouTube channel or any of these other creative endeavors. Um but I've noticed that, like, when I can catch myself, like, going into these moments where I'm just so frustrated with myself, you know, not the process, not other people, but just, like, I turn the anger of um, of circumstance, which is outside of my control. Like, I look at, I, right. <laughs> I blame myself for the circumstances which I don't have control over or just, like, and then, you know, stress, like, impedes creativity all the time. And... But I, I remember, like, with the book, where, like, when December 31st came and went, and I was just like, you know what? Like, it'll get done. I'm just – I need to take a, take a minute um, mm-hmm. to just cry out a bunch of stuff. And so I remember, like, over Christmas and New Year's, like, I was crying a lot, and I was, like, really, like, feeling the weight of my, my late my, – the beginning of my late 20s. Because, <laughs> like, that's what it feels like th- right now is just this – this thing of like, God, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Like I, I'm providing for myself and I can pay for my bills, but like not much else. Um, and it, it's been, that's where I've kind of been at now. So like now I have like, I've, and it's kind of like what you said, like it was actually like this morning I was talking with my friend, the Reverend Sarah Heath, and I was talking about her book project. And I'm just like, did you just like get to a point where you just like couldn't write stuff? Cause it was just like too hard for you. She's like, yeah. And then one day I woke up and I was like, okay, I can do this now. Mm, and yeah. so. Yeah. Just one day you just. One day you knew and you began. Yeah. And I think that, so Nashville is really interesting because it's um, a creative industry town. Yeah. And, um, and so I, I, I kind of see these two different types. Like these, this is kind of like, um, there's like two poles that people tend to like gravitate towards. One is like the musician who like never gets anything done, who talks big all the time and never does anything. And Mm. is always, you know, like always talking and never doing. And, uh, and then on the other side you have like the hard worker that turns out like four songs a day, you know? And, um, in the interview I just did with native magazine, which is a Nashville magazine here, I talked about how, um, we have this philosophy with songwriting in town which is like you sit down and you write a song like every day. You just sit down and write a song every day. And not every song has to be great, but when it's like when the wave comes, be ready to ride it. Is yeah. the, it's the language I use. So Oh, um, that's good. That's so good. But you have to be in the water, 
right when the wave comes, right? Otherwise, like you're not, mm-hmm. like if you only go out there once you see the wave, then you're going to miss it. It's like you have to be in the water trying again and again and again. And so that's like a really like hard work ethic. Like people in Nashville, like we have a lot of bums because we have a lot of musicians, but we have a lot of like people who just work, 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 project on project on project. And I think that because we have a lot of industry in town, people, um, that's why people work really hard because there is kind of this like I work hard and then there is like something to show for it. I work. There's the instant gratif- There is the gratification of like accomplishing, and I think that for me I had to find the balance between like being okay with not accomplishing because my my gravitation is to like work 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 work, which has been most of my life here in Nashville, trying to kind of like make it uh, like make my way as a producer and a songwriter or an artist here on the scene and. Um, and so I just, I had to find a place where I, I wasn't, and that's different. Like, I think that that level of ambition is something that's really unique to the culture of Nashville that mm-hmm. you don't necessarily get to see that kind of work ethic with musicians and artists most of the time, because everywhere else people just think we're a bunch of lazy vagabonds. So <laughs> is that what people say about Nashville? Is that you're just lazy vagabonds? Oh, no, no, no. I just think, like, that's what people think when you tell them that you, like, are a musician, that, like, you oh, live in a right. box. Right? But, like, in Nashville, you see people, like, it's almost like nine to fives. Like, people, like, you know, leave in the morning, they go do co-writes, and they do this, and then, like, they come back. And um, there is, like, that work ethic here. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, for me, I, I had to realize I wasn't going to be, I wasn't making something that was going to fit into what was typical Nashville and what was like popular and what was expected. And, um, and on a certain level, like, um, I couldn't expect myself to like write a song every day, so to speak. Um, because, okay. And so this is like part of my philosophy on life and, um, kind of, um, as I was put, I I sometimes put it, um, spiritual metaphysics, Mm. um, (laughs) where, I mean, and you know this too, because you're you're a musician. That right. um, that silence is just as important as the music. Mm-hmm. And so I think about the, about the Sabbath that way too. Is like we mark rests in music when we write music, right? Yeah. Um, and in the same way, Sabbaths are our marked rests in our lives. Ooh, come through. <laughs> so, um, and it's like that's a thing. Is like you could just say, oh, well, you rest when you rest, and it's like, no, 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 you need to mark that. And that is why put it down. That's right. And that's why in scripture, it doesn't say just like, and then on the seventh day, nothing happened. No, it said like we intentionally rest. Like rest isn't passive. Rest is actually an active choice to reject um, the expectations of our world. Oh, yes. Because the expectation is that if you could be working, you would be working. Yeah. Right. And And um, just produce, produce, produce and go, go, go without realizing just like, you know, you're a human with a body and your body only has so much energy and so much, uh, you know, mental space to occupy certain things. And if you don't slow down and let all that stuff like decompress, like, you know, like we, and then that's how like, you know, becoming workaholic happens. That's how like damage in relationships happens. Um, and even the, our damage to the relationship with ourselves too, because if we have this unrealistic expectation of ourselves to keep on producing whatever it is we're supposed to be producing you know like it's almost like we're we're our own stage parent you know what i mean right and the thing about sabbath keeping and resting is that it doesn't like the sabbath doesn't exist to make us better workers but the reality is it's when we are um, submitting to 
God that we do become better at the things that we do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you were like, Oh, well you are more effective as a worker when you rest. But it's like, but ultimately I don't judge the value of the world by like how good of a worker or producer I am. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, and I say producer, I meant like production, not like music producer, but same thing. Right. Like, (laughs) um, how much I'm able to like manifest in a capitalist sense. So, um, yeah, like that's the thing about, I think about God's calling, um, and even God's like law and statutes and to us is like, it's for human flourishing. Right. right? And it's like resting isn't like resting allows us to be able to live into, um, the joy of righteousness, but it isn't, but it's actually not the thing. Like we don't rest because it makes us like good people. Right. It's like actually, um, this book I'm reading right now talks about how, um, the revolution is the Sabbath. Mm. It's like, it's not like self self care isn't necessary to the revolution. It actually is the revolution. You know, like we have concepts and theories, you know, gravity or like the three laws of thermodynamics or whatever. And there's ways of understanding, um, and interpreting those beyond um, a physical realm and also interpreting how our spirits are connected to these physical concepts. So that's like what I would think of as metaphysics, right? Right. So um, every action has an like an reaction, like equal reaction or something like that. Like, oh, so like, um, you know, you can apply that to a spiritual sense as well is to think of like, or potential energy. Ooh, I like this one. So there's potential and then there's kinetic energy. And um, kinetic energy is like, let's say like a car, a ball is rolling down a hill and it's like moving, right? So that's like energy. But if the ball is standing, is sitting still at the top of the hill, it actually has that same energy in it as the, like the kinetic energy, but it's just potential, mm-hmm. right? So like everything the, the ball needs to roll down the hill is the and that potential energy there. is there so that's the thing is like if we think about people right just because we don't see the movement of the ball rolling down the hill doesn't mean that that potential energy isn't in the person already another one i really like i actually got like this came out when i was talking to my dad who's an like like i mentioned he's an engineer and he was kind of talking about like, oh, like the, the messenger is just, they just bring the message, you know, it's separate from them. And I was like, that's not really true. Like we're all color, like the message is always colored by the messenger and brings it in and we can't ignore that, right? Like mm-hmm. we have to engage it. We can't just pretend it doesn't happen. We can't just try and be less of ourselves. We just have to like actually lean into what that is to discover what it uniquely means. And he was like fighting with me about it and about like the clarity of the message. And I was like, um, like, look, like, let's use, um, sound, literally sound waves, like a message as an example. Um, did you know, Kevin, did you know that there is, it is completely silent in space? I did know that. That's why no one can hear you scream because there's no, <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. No one can hear you scream. No one can hear you scream in space because there's no, um, air to, that's for right. the, for the vibrations that are created yes. Yes. to so do there's... anything. There's so every no time map. you see a space movie and you hear all the explosions <laughs> happening out there, that's not real. That's None not of that is... real. That's right. Although that's Interstellar, not Interstellar didn't do that. Right. Which I was well, – no, not Wait. Interstellar. It was Interstellar and um, – I, I didn't watch that movie. But... <laughs> what's that movie with Sandra Bullock and she's stuck in space and she has to get down to Earth? 
Isn't oh. that inter- that's not Interstellar? That's oh, is Matthew McConaughey in that too? Yes, ironically. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, it's, not, it's not Matthew McConaughey. It's uh, George Clooney. George Clooney's in that one. Okay, I know which one you're talking about. I just can't remember what it's called because it was like nominated for some stuff. I remember. Yeah. But the idea Anyways, is that like space, the mess. No, the can you message, Yeah, the message though. It's like just like a message cannot exist without a messenger. Like sound is actually it exists within the vibrations of matter and so um my dad was like yeah so like air like we were like just we were like pointing to air and he's like you know air is like you can't see it but it's there and i'm like but dad air isn't the best transmitter of sound it actually is the worst isn't it water sound, sound is more accurately um and like moved and trans like not translated but you know i'm like carried in more solid things with a denser matter and so in the same way that like air like air is the thing that we think of as like sound traveling through and it like you can't see it but it's there it actually like sound is better transmitted with more solid things Hmm. so like when we think about the concept of um, being a messenger too it's like if you're more if you it's not about making yourself less it's actually about embodying the message more and um and thinking through that so like giving matter to the actual giving matter like yeah more dense form to the message that's right so like when we we've been like talking a lot in our community i mean like we have like a weird i don't know how to describe our community but like we have this community we are talking about how we are all trying to like make ourselves less in the purity and of the message and the caring and it's like actually um we are able to be more honest and accurate to the message when we are fully present instead of trying to make ourselves less of something because you can't make yourself less of something you can only uh try to capitulate to whiteness <laughs> which yeah. which makes itself as the illusion of like neutrality it like mm-hmm. but it doesn't that doesn't actually exist so um this is like an this is my metaphysical spiritual uh, example of like literally sound waves um mm-hmm. and the way that that operates and how we can use that understanding of how sound travels through matter yeah to understand our lives in the in spiritual messaging yeah i think there's a very real world example like has I don't know if you ever did this, but like, um, where someone like can, like someone in a church setting congratulated you on doing something really well, and I don't know if you've ever said this, but I've kn- I have said it before. I know people have said it, it's like, oh, it's not me, it's all God. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> it's not me, it's all God. It, but it's just it's one of those things where it's just like, well, yes, it is all yeah. God, but but also. You know, God it's created God through me. <laughs> yes, like God created this person, and because I'm fully myself and fully, uh, fully like fully invested in the thing I'm teaching, fully invested in the message that God gave me. You know, that's also me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about like saying it's not me; it's all God. It's about saying, you know, I'm I'm partnering with God. You know, I I am devoting myself fully to this, and like by becoming you know, really, really good at my craft, really, really good at my art, really, really good at, um, or at least like really, uh, practiced in my traditions and in my, what I think about God and the world and everything else. And so I, I definitely stopped saying it's like, it's not me. It's all God. I, I just, I always just say, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Or, you know, if you really want to give the glory to God, you can just like glory to be to God. Glory like, to God. Thank you. Glory, glory be to God. Yeah. Um, or, I, I mean, I like to think of it as, like, I, when, if I want to, like, do that, I was like, praise God that I get to um, be in God and 
yes. experience like the glory of God like through mm-hmm. my existence. It's it's nuts. What a weird, wonderful world. Like, uh, like I, we're not electricity. Like there's like if you think of a wire, it's like we're not the electricity, but like the electricity travels through us, mm-hmm. and it's like cool. I get to like carry the electricity. Like mm-hmm. I'm such a, okay. I'm <laughs> no, but that's that's true though. I often think about it this way. I was like, I don't know how a brain actually works, or like that's it's it, that is the grandest mystery to me. It's like we can map out in our brains like you know where certain things like what parts of our brains like light up when we have certain emotions or you know what chemicals are responsible for the body or the person feeling a certain way um and then you know we can map out like you know how the neurons interact with like Firing. the nerves yeah. and like how somewhere in my brain it's formulating a bunch of sounds which then are formed to create words that are then going to you and your brain is like hearing these different sounds that I'm creating and then assembling that all into an intelligible language that we both mm-hmm. understand relate to that is nuts how all that mm-hmm. is happening in l- less than a moment and so quickly and like, yeah and somehow in all that it's colored by a spirit and by a personality and all the other things that we just don't understand mm-hmm. and how cool is it that we just get to i think i get in awe of my own existence sometimes not to say that I'm an awesome or something like that but to say like <laughs> this like it's a miracle I mean yes, like... my body is a miracle your body is a miracle I actually I want to read you something I wrote because I'm actually really mm-hmm. proud of it I don't know how to talk about God I certainly understand that's a strange thing to say, seeing as how I feel called to be a pastor and a teacher in some form, but it's the truth. And every time I think about how to describe the person of God, I immediately know that there's so much that I've missed. As the universe is endless and ever-expanding, so too is God, and I can't wrap my head around for... Or I can't wrap my head around forever. Or the idea that the universe just keeps going and going. Nor can I understand how the chemicals in my brain and the neurons interact with one another. In order for me to conceive thoughts and ideas, or even the words I'm typing out now, or how all this is colored by an ego and a personality, my involuntary breathing, my very heartbeat is a miracle, and when I stop to think about my body, I am in awe of the workmanship of God. It's poetry, spelled out with billions of tiny cells which are made up of even tinier atoms, which are made up of even tinier electrons and neutrons, and somehow it's all held together in perfect execution. And that's extraordinary. That God caused the stars to burn so brightly billions of light years from us so that we could see them, or that God orchestrated the right interactions of the invisible forces of magnetism and gravity to create a tiny planet suitable for life to come forth. And yet for all that complexity in the whole of creation, as vast as the universe is, God is still as close to me as the cells in my body and the neurons in my brain. God is in all of it. God is all of it. And I cannot understand that. And it's the beautiful mystery that I could wax poetic about for the rest of my life and never grow tired of. But um, before we go, let me ask one more question actually related to your documentary. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, The person you, the person you're, who is going to watch this film, like what's the, if you could pick one thing for them to walk away from that film, um, feeling, knowing, um, relating to what's, what's that one thing you want them to take away? 
if there is just um, one thing? <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, this is a very intense film that's all about me. Like, it's really, like, all about me and my story and my journey. But it's not – I didn't make the, the, the film about me because I am, like, a narcissist. I want to inspire people to ask those questions of themselves, right? Like, like in my search for home, I want them to ask, oh, where's my home? Or when I say, where do I come from? Then they think, where do I come from? Right. And it's like, like, I'm asking questions about what does it mean to be Taiwanese that also beg the question, what does it mean to be American? And like, I want everyone to ask them. I want like all my American people to like ask themselves, like, what is it? Like, I think more than ever, it's like, what does it mean to be American? Mm. <laughs> so um, that's my, like, I guess that's what I want people to take away is like questions, like whatever, like ethnic historical background you come from, however your parents ended up here or wherever they are, like, you know, I think we should all ask ourselves, how did you get here? And like, what, what does home mean? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, like I'm a Christian and so I I live with a constant acute sense that this place is not my home and that right. heaven is and the kingdom of heaven is my home. Um, and so that's how I kind of I, I walk through life knowing that. And yet, like, I want to plant gardens in Babylon is the way that we talk about it is like mm. I'm going to engage and I'm going to cultivate the land here in this place, even while I know that I'm in a foreign space. And I wish that one thing I wish that like people of European descent here in America would like think about people who call themselves white is especially those who are Christians is like when you think about home and belonging is your allegiance more to Babylon or is it to the kingdom of God um, because if you could th- see yourself as an immigrant or as a refugee um, if you could see yourself as a second-class citizen of the world but if but like a first-class citizen of the kingdom of God like how would your posture change? Um, because I know that having to ask those really hard questions of myself has allowed me to um, find freedom, um, knowing that in the freedom in the realm of glory, um, while being able to cast off the shackles of um, this earth and the things that it tries to project onto me in terms of like my worth mm-hmm. and my value and my dignity and uh, my humanity. That was my conversation with Sue Ann Shaw. You can connect with her over on Instagram and Twitter at Sue Ann Shaw. That's S-U-E-A-N-N-C-H-I-A-H. And you can check out all the information regarding her documentary, Juan Dao, at juandaofilm.com. That's H-U-A-N-D-A-O film.com. And if you want to join us for a live tweet session of the film on March 31st, all of those details can be found on Facebook and at juandaofilm.com. I want to give a special shout out to all my Patreon supporters who are amazing. Thank you for helping make this work possible. Thank you for allowing me to create and to just do the things that I love, even on days when I don't feel like I love myself. 
you guys have been so supportive and have been giving me awesome messages and texting me and I just I sincerely appreciate what you who you are to me and what you've done for me and what you continue to do it's amazing um so if you want to become a Patreon supporter and get connected with me more, get connected with this work more, and make conversations like this possible, you can go to patreon.com slash thekevingarcia, and it's there that you'll be able to connect with all the different rewards I've got, everything from $1 all the way up to like $1,000. If you got $1,000 lying around, I wouldn't mind if you sent it my way. Um, anyways, um, thank you guys. If you could just be praying for me. Um, I have a lot of questions um, about what direction I'm heading in this life, um, what God's doing with me in this current season. And I could just use, um, peace and direction and, um, yeah, all those things that we pray for on a weekly daily basis. Anyways, thank you all so much for joining this conversation. As per usual, you can connect with me via social media at the Kevin Garcia at most things. Um, you can Google me on the first result and be sure to subscribe over at the blog and get my free ebook. That's all for me. This has been another episode of A Tiny Revolution. I hope you loved it, and I hope you know that you're loved so much. I'll talk to all of you soon. Bye now. building a wall isn't going to keep Asian Americans out. Oh, absolutely not. Cause they're obviously Cause they come not over coming. On boats. Yeah. <laughs>